there's nearly a half a million children who are in foster care and mm. in this country. And I don't know how many people spend time thinking about it. And a lot of those children who end up aging out, they just turn 18 or 21 and they move on. The outcomes for them are terrible. They repeat the cycle, they're in jail, they're homeless, mm. uh, they're overdosing themselves. It's terrible. So, you know, the short stay in foster care, maybe the stabilization, maybe some kids have safety that needs to be addressed. But for a lot of these kids, they're just being re-traumatized every time mm. we remove yeah. their families. And as a society, this is repeating. Welcome to Captivate the Room with your host, internationally known voice expert, Tracy Goodwin, an award-winning speaker who has taught hundreds around the globe to make a big impact with their voice. This podcast is for anyone who wants to step onto a bigger stage, make a bigger impact, and have a voice that makes people listen. Presentation matters, and the voice is the missing link. Join in and you'll see why. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Goodwin. And I'm so glad to be with you today, as always. Thank you so much for your shares and your downloads and for being a subscriber. I really love being on this voice journey with you. And I've got a great episode for you today. As you know, I take a lot of care in picking the guest that I bring on the show. And I'm just tickled pink to have my guest today. I was so excited. I reached out to him and Ask if he would come on the show. And he said, yes. And I'm just thrilled to have Bill Delizio with me today. I think you're going to find his work fascinating. And we have a great discussion about voice and being voiceless and the work that he does and podcasting. And I'm just so honored to have him here. I met Bill A couple of years ago, he came up to me after I spoke at Podcast Movement and introduced himself and and asked me about potentially doing some teaching and speaking for him in Colorado, which I have done. You've heard me talk about it. And it's just been some of the most rewarding work I have personally ever done in this line of work that I do. I mean, I love everybody I work with and you know, I know I make a difference, but when the times that I have gone to Colorado, I just, when I have seen the work that these people do, it elevates my work to a whole nother level of impact, knowing who I'm impacting. So it's really been an incredible experience. I got to go up there two times last year, and I'm just so excited and honored that Bill is with me here on the show. Let me give you a little bit about his background. William Bill Delizio has 20 years of experience as a judicial administrator and court program manager at the local and state level. He's responsible for leading child and family initiatives, building teams, catalyzing new ways of thinking, and improving the administration of justice through collaboration. Prior to joining the state court administrator's office, he worked in Colorado's 17th Judicial District from December 1999 to August 2005 as domestic relation case manager, juvenile family court facilitator, and juvenile court programs manager. He began his career in judicial administration in North Carolina as the criminal case flow manager in the Gaston County District Attorney's Office following a paid internship in the Superior Court of Delaware. Bill's also a podcaster, and his podcast is titled Beyond the Collabo Babble, and the focus is collaboration in the Colorado courts and probation. In July 2019, the podcast was launched department-wide. Bill, also, he's from Ohio, And he grew up a lifetime Cleveland Browns fan. And because of this allegiance to the Browns, he holds a strong hatred for the Denver Broncos and John Elway. I know you're going to really love to hear all about Bill and all about his thoughts about voice and how it relates to the work that he does. So let's head on over to the show. 
Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks, Tracy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you and your audience. Well, I'm I'm so glad to have you here. And I know everybody's going to just love hearing what you have to say, not to put any pressure on you at all. But I want, you know, I wanted to come on the show because the opportunities that I've had with you have been some of that you and the, and the work that I've been able to do for Colorado have been some of the most, you know, I guess, profound moments of my whole career. I have that they have the time that I have spent with you guys has been so impactful for me. And, and just the whole concept of the work that, that I've been able to do with you and that you do in general, I just think is so valuable to talk about and, and to introduce this kind of work to the listeners. So I'm really glad that you're here. Why, why don't we start with, tell us what you do, tell us how you got there, give us a little background on you and the work. Okay, well, first, I'd like to say uh, it's been really great working with you, too. And uh, I think the folks in Colorado that have had the opportunity to work with you have really found it useful. Uh, The work I do, I work for the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office. And for the past 21 years, I've worked in some capacity as a judicial administrator or a court programs coordinator. Uh, To folks who maybe aren't familiar with the justice system, they may not understand what this is. But essentially what I do on a high level is I build teams, I lead teams, I catalyze new ways of thinking, working on reform and improvement projects. And uh, we try to improve the administration of justice so that it's fair and impartial. So that's the kind of work that I do. A lot of it has to do with organizing teams, uh, leading other people that I have on my team. Right now, I have about 10 people on my team in very varying different areas, domestic relations, divorce, child support. I even have some people that do distance learning work for the branch. Um, I also have the opportunity to work with dependency and neglect courts, of course, that involve abuse and neglected children and probate court. And really where I find my area of expertise and where I've spent a good part of my career is in those dependency and neglect courts. And that's kind of where we started um, to work. So we do a lot of training. We do a lot of organizing. We do a lot of spreading best practices, whether those are things that are being identified on a national level or the things that we might be coming up with within our state. And I just have a really uh, privileged opportunity to kind of serve the community and often serve parts of the community that are in need of a lot of help because of their situation with poverty, because of their situation with mental health and lack of services sometimes, substance use disorder. Um, so that's that's how I that's what I do. And um, and it's it's a very rewarding career. Like I said, I, I, I kind of intentionally decided to get into it when I learned about um, the field when I was an undergrad, and I've had a long career and a lot of success doing it, and, and it's been very rewarding. Wow. Well, that and that was going to be my next question: is how did you get into this work? But you've done this. You, you found out about it in college and have done this ever since. Yeah, it's kind of a funny story, and I, and I feel very blessed because I still meet people to this day that will tell me that one day I'm going to figure out what I do when I grow up. But I was a junior <laughs> in college. I took a class called judicial administration because it was part of my criminal justice major. I didn't know what it really was. I was taking it because it was a mandatory requirement. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating when I say within that first couple of hours of that class, I kind of I recognized that this is what I wanted to do, taking the criminal justice classes, dabbling in the business classes. I found it really interesting that it combined both some of these business concepts and the, the concepts of the justice system and so I began writing letters and researching where you can get master, you know, uh, graduate degrees in this. So, you know, what do the jobs look like? I reached out to the National Center for State Courts at that time, wrote, this is even before email was as prominent as now, sending mm-hmm. letters around, having them send me back brochures and really began to, to, to identify that as the, the target for my career. And luckily I was accepted into the University of Denver College of Law Master's in, in uh, Legal Administration program. And uh, in that program, I got to meet many, many people who actually worked in the Colorado courts or, or people who were, you know, founders in the field, if you will. Uh, the field was, was created sometime in the 60s when they recognized they needed professional administrators to run courts and law firms because lawyers don't get those kind of, that kind of training necessarily. Judges are lawyers. Lawyers go to law school. They don't get a lot of the business side of things. And they started to notice in, in the 60s that that was a need in the courts. So. I had this great opportunity to go through that program um, with some of the people that were my professors that were leaders in the field, uh, founders in the field, 
And then ultimately, I, after I graduated, I did a, a year in a DA's office in North Carolina, and then I had an opportunity to come back to Colorado. And that's really where I got into family court. It was at that time, family court was just another job, right? I mean, I'm out of college. Mm-hmm. I need to pay loans, all that kind of stuff. But it turned out it fit my skill set and my interest, I think, pretty well as I, as I got into it. And once I got into the juvenile court, I was hooked. Yeah. Well, and I want to talk a little bit more about the specifics of that, uh, of what you see, uh, you know, what the specifics of the the work that you do there in family court. But I want to ask a a broad question first. What is it that you love the most about the work that you do? Could you, could you pick one thing? I think I got a couple of things, but one thing that comes right to my mind and I, and I've been doing some reading about this, um, And they're talking about it even now in the private sector, and that is the importance of something being mission driven and really having a connection to, you know, improving the community. So I think that right off the bat, this work um, allows you to step into a situation where you're you're improving the community through the programs, the projects, the training, the things you do. You know, the idea is fair and impartial justice for everybody. Any person who is going to be in front of a court deserves a fair and impartial opportunity to have their um, conflict resolved. And so the mission is very clear. The other part of what I've really liked is a lot of opportunity, believe it or not, and I think sometimes people don't think of it this way, even though it is working in a capacity of public service government capacity, you get to bring a lot of creativity and entrepreneurial spirit to the work because we're talking about complex problems like like substance use disorder, mental health, co-occurring, trauma, complex trauma, these things that require the legal profession, the mental health field, um, and attorneys, judges, all of the folks that are involved to really have to deal with these complex, complex matters. So, what are the best practices and how do we talk to one another? I've used the example many times, like when we all get together, it can be like the United Nations without the interpreters. We actually think we're all having the same conversation, but even words mean different things in different fields. So the challenge that we have to, to organize the community, to bring folks together, to educate ourselves about each other's area of the work, at least enough for us to be effective and serve the people that come into our, our system and to our courts. And I love that part of the work. And so, you know, keeping an eye, you know, when you go back to that question of what I do, keeping an eye on what's going on at the local level, the state level, the federal level, where is the field trending and kind of trying to make some predictions on where we need to go. And then being in that position at a state level now, but even when I worked at the local court level, to kind of be that person that can help lead in that direction. That's really exciting work for me. It's something that really fits my personality well. Um, and in this area where we're constantly getting new information about the human brain and trauma, it, it's very important. And, that, and that's part of the reason when I, when I discovered your presentation at Podcast Movement in 2018, I thought this voice, uh, the way you described the importance of voice to connect and engage with people, I said, this is all about the work we're trying to do. Um, and I, that's, that's, that's how I found you and then yeah. connected afterwards. And it, and, and it's, it's been really exciting, but yeah, what are the things we can do to better connect and engage with people? Because it's harder than, um, I think a lot of us think it might be at times where we take it for granted that we are connecting. And, uh, I'm sure your audience has listened to much, many of your podcasts and they, they, they understand this, but until I really, um, discovered your work, uh, it wasn't the same. I didn't have the same understanding that I do now. Yeah. And, and Bill and I met at Podcast Movement. I did a presentation there and, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget. You came up to me after the press. I went over time. I think I told you all about that. You know, I just, I just need to learn to stop talking about this stuff. And you came up to me after and, and you introduced the idea of me coming down to Colorado, coming over to Colorado. And I thought I would have never even thought about the impact that I could make. And that's what I loved. That's what I love so much about coming. And it sounds like that's a huge part of why you love the work so much. Mm-hmm. I love everybody I work with. I love every company I get to go in. But there was this next level feeling of I was really making a difference mm-hmm. when I was with your teams. And and there's and and that making that impact 
oh my gosh, I was just, you know, can, can y'all find me a full-time spot? I'll move in. You know, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it so much, but there's so many moving parts and you just said so many phenomenal things. And I think that there are probably more moving parts in your world than, than maybe some other worlds. But I know that everybody that's listening right now, no matter what profession that they're in, gosh, that's powerful what you said about speaking mm-hmm. the same language mm-hmm. and without the interpreters. Mm-hmm. And that's so much about the voice. Yes. You know, is your meaning clear? Is it lining up with your words? And that's really impactful because people perceive they're making their message clear, but they don't. Yes, yes. Or we fall into that trap where we think if we tell people um, what to do and, and we make it clear that they understood it. And we know that if their yeah. brain is in a fight or flight mode, if they feel threat, if they're scared, if they're recovering from substance use or mental health and they've had um, a relapse uh, or they're just deep in the addiction and they haven't even had a chance uh, to, to have some sobriety around that, like our message is not connecting. Uh, yeah. And, and that's something you and I have talked about over over many uh, conversations, but right. Do the people feel like they're in a safe space? Uh, do they really believe that we're here to help you? Do they really believe that the, the services we're offering are going to, are really going to help them? Are we listening to what they need? Are, yeah. are we asking them the kind of questions that, that we can get the answers out of them? Because they may not use the same words to describe what they need. And as we do as, as people who are professionals and sometimes stuck with our acronyms and stuck with our like shop talk or whatever you want to say, um, how do we really meet people where they're at? So, yeah, uh, it's so it's so important um, to be able to, to recognize that. And, and, and I think this is what you realized when you were working with our folks in a high pressure life and death situation, sometimes with a high workload. People are trying to get through it quickly. And how do we how do we do this in a time limited fashion? Or how do we create an environment where we can connect even if it's not a ton of time? And I think yeah. that your message is really important um, to give people tips to let them know that, it, that this is actually, there's some science behind it. There's actually a way yeah. that you can practice to get better. Yeah. Even if you think you're a great communicator, uh, you can always get better, take it next level. Totally next level. And that's one of the things that I noticed, uh, and, and everybody is under time pressure, but man, you know, y'all are under time pressure. And there's so many incredibly powerful dynamics in the world that, that you serve. And, I, and I, you've mentioned a little bit about trauma and uh, addiction. And, and I'd like to dive into to, to that a little bit, because one of the things that really I find very interesting about the work, and especially when I'm there with you guys, is let me see if I can say this the right way, because I, I don't want to insinuate anything other than exactly what I mean, is that you, you've got people who surely must feel voiceless, not because of you, but just because, and then you've got some of the most powerful voices, people making laws, yeah. So how, that's a that's a pretty that's a big dynamic. So let's talk a little bit about those voiceless and how you guys work to give them a voice. Yeah. Well, most of the people we're going to encounter. I'm going to use an example of what I call the family treatment drug court, which is a specialized kind of way of approaching cases in a dependency and neglect court where they're abused and neglected children. And you know, the first thing to kind of paint the picture is you're probably a person walking into a courthouse, which is often a cold place with metal detector at the door. Um, you're probably showing up on a day or two after somebody has come and taken your child away from you. Maybe you were in the hospital and you tested positive for heroin or methamphetamine um, and they've taken your children and maybe you've had a couple other children that they obviously found out about and now have been removed. And so, you're showing up to a place that maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've, you've got some idea what court's about. But if you haven't, you're, you're walking into a foreign place. Uh, we do have our own use of words and language and the way that we talk to one another. 
and you're this person who's walking in. And I think you're going to feel powerless for sure. You're definitely powerless, even if the day before, um, you know, and, and unfortunately, it's just the fact that most of the people that we're encountering have uh, are in poverty. So we are generally used are usually serving people who um, are having a tough go at life already. And, and, but even if you were the person who had your own business and had been financially stable and can hire your own attorney, you're walking into a place where you're going to feel a little bit powerless, I'm sure. So that's, that's where I think voicelessness, powerlessness, now we're coming in, we're going to appoint attorneys for you, uh, appoint attorneys for your children. You're going to meet a judge and a caseworker and you probably feel powerless, especially if you don't understand what's going on. So that's the first place where I think you see those folks walking through the door and then you add on top of it, they probably have a pretty chaotic life to begin with to find themselves Mm -hmm. in this situation. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the treatment court where most often there's, there's going to be a a component of, first of all, these adults probably have been abused at some point in their own lives as children. Um, This is a cycle. In, yeah. in many instances, and they're suffering from substance use disorder and a mental health disorder. And, you know, it's just like we know this now from the science that the frontal cortex, the, the, the part of your brain that you use to, to make executive functioning is probably not at its, its sharpest right now. And now you're walking into this situation. And, and I just remember seeing and we had a program that focused mainly on women. And I remember seeing women walk in that first day who had agreed it's a voluntary program to join this program that's going to speed up the time to get your children back to you, mm. uh, front load the services. If you need to get an outpatient, outpatient treatment, you can go there on today. Like mm. You can go there today. Um, and you kind of would look at folks and you would make a judgment just based on their parents that, like, boy, they don't look like they're going to make it because they were broken, beat down, they'd been yeah. abused. And then you see a year later, these same people who you've come to a place where we connect and we actually say, we're going to help you and we do it. And we feel like a community and they come to court together and they spend time, some of the treatment groups together and the judge does things for them that they would never really have, like talk to them directly in court. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's more common now today, but in the early 2000s, we're in a court and attorneys talk, not always the, the, the parents. Mm. Um, and you start to connect, right? And they get to know each other in a different way. So I think that's how we gave people a voice. We created a structure where we're going to ask you for what you need. We're going to assess what you need. We're going to do everything we can to get you that. We're going to bring you back to court on a regular weekly basis, not to be a, hold you accountable and punish you, but to try to find a way problem solve what we need to do to help you out so to me the voiceless come in that way and everybody in the system automatically is in a more powerful position because they know how things work they they know the people it's their environment that they walk into for work every day so there there's a certain level of comfort even though we're making these often uncomfortable kind of, of choices about should children be removed from their parents but this is this is the this is this is for lack of a better word where people go to work and now you're in there. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how I see the voiceless, the powerless, and trying to give them, you know, agency and tell them we're gonna we're gonna prop you up, we're gonna support you. Yeah, really good, and that is one thing that I would say across the board. With all of the people that I've that, you know, that I've worked with there, and I and, and they're in all different positions, is I don't know that I've ever seen such compassion hmm. among the people trying, you know, that are helping these people. Yeah, there's a lot of people that really are committed to to making it better. Um, sometimes, yeah. you know, you 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 do this for years. Like I said, I've been doing it for almost 20 years, and and sometimes you're still trying to solve. Uh, problems or, or, or barriers, trying to remove barriers that have been there for 20 years. And sometimes you can feel a little disheartened, but um, it's it's the kind of work that we did with you where you get just a little bit better because you learn uh, something mm-hmm. that you didn't even think of. How yeah. my voice impacts my ability to connect with somebody and make them feel welcome and at least start building that relationship. And so that's why these these are these are small things that are very important and go very far away. 
Yeah, the tiniest shift can make all the difference in the world. And and it's just as simple as, and it's not just in, in your line of work, it's just as simple as, I'm under pressure, let's go. I got a lot, you know, I got a lot yeah. going, let's go. Yeah. Without even realizing that this person is terrified and broken and all of these things. And that yes. that tone, literally, that's all it took yeah. to unravel them. Yeah, that's what I learned so much from listening to you is like, if you, you made you as the person that's the professional may not even realize how you sound. And, mm-hmm. and, and of course, you go observe a courtroom. There's some folks who can get through some some information pretty quickly. Um, they do it every day. It, it almost becomes a, a habit. And then they're talking to somebody who's maybe they don't understand it. Do we take that second to go? Can I check in with you, you know, or can I change my vocal variety so that they actually can yeah. come back? Um, so yeah, anyway, that, that's very true. It's, it's, um, it's a compassionate group of people. And, and, and what I find in the juvenile court, I mean, there are people who, um, this is what they do their whole careers. It's not a place that, you know, it's not a place that people go. That's, I, I actually work with a lot of people. The stories are interesting. If you talk to people, if you come back, you meet other people in these, in these courts, a lot of people didn't even know they existed before they got, a, you know, started practicing law in this area. It's mm-hmm. something that maybe happened by chance or somebody said, I think he would be really good at representing children that are abused. And they go, I didn't even know that existed. And, and if you hear those stories, these folks are really committed to, um, to the work they do because they can see. And like I said, in that drug court, when, when you see that, that mom reunited with her children and she's in front of a room full of professionals and the twinkles in her eye, you know, they look healthy. You know, I, I, the judge I worked with in this court, Judge Melanakis, would say it's probably how a doctor feels when they work with somebody that, who goes from sick to well. And I think with these, uh, with the mental health and substance use, it really is. You watch people transform um, their family. Sometimes they have their son or their daughter back, right? So you are helping people recover. And there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of satisfaction in knowing you had some part to play in that. Maybe not all of the part, but a small percentage. Oh yeah. And that's certainly why I feel like the work that when I get to come down there is so impactful because I know that I know the difference that your people are making all day long, all day long. I think a lot of us probably can't even maybe aren't even aware of the trauma and abuse and uh, drug addiction and all of the things that you guys work with on a daily basis. Some of us may not even, we, we have an idea, but I don't know if we have a real idea. Yeah. I mean, we were working with some facilitators at the end of last year um, and it was, it, it was an interesting moment when one of the f- facilitators just stopped us because we were talking about, um, children dying Mm. and they just said wow like this just hit me i want you guys to understand that like i knew the work you did was important and impactful but that really that really hit me right in the heart there like this is what it's about this was a person who had described that they had i I can't remember if they formally adopted children but they were formerly fostered children but they were uh two individuals it was a husband and wife team actually who over the years themselves um had had brought in children children and youth and, you know, kind of supported them when they were having tough times in their families. And she really just stopped. And, 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 and that was Glenna. And Michael said, you know, now that I understand what you guys do, like, I'm going to talk about it more because I didn't fully yeah. appreciate it. I'm going to have a dinner with my friends. I'm going to talk about the work you guys are doing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It, it, and that's kind of was my experience. I got into the field. Um, I was already working in, in, a, in a court, in a family court, but like the juvenile job opened up and I went through the CASA training, which was a, a training, 40 hour training for volunteers to be uh, advocates for children, the voiceless. Mm. That's actually their thing, voice for the voiceless. They're volunteers. Mm-hmm. They take one case and they just tell the judge what's best interest of the child. And I wanted this job and I took that class and I learned about it. And I'm like, this is the perfect match of like what I'm interested in and and once again, Judge Malinakis having that opportunity to work with him for a couple of years, I think he really taught me what it meant to be a public servant and serve your community, which once I got a little taste of that, I said, okay, this is, this is where I want to spend at least a big part of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 
it's fun, it's challenging, and it's rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. It's also sad, but I mean, the sad stories often, you, when you see those success stories, it, it kind of reminds you, uh, you're, that's why you do it. And that's why I think when you're seeing some of the people you see when you're doing the training, that's why that's what gets them up every morning. I think they know they can make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Just really extraordinary people. And, and some of the most well thought out questions I have ever been asked in my life regarding this work. It's, you know, I'm, just, I'm kind, of, kind of just sitting here thinking about, I'm still back on the voiceless children thinking, Hey, maybe we need to start a program for yeah. them. You know, health because you were talking about habits and cycles, and and, yes. and my wheel, my wheel started turning as soon as you were talking about that. I think you know, you if you worked with the children or you know parents that are in these systems, we often have panels, and there's always there's always a panel of really impactful you know parents or children that can speak about their experiences. Um, but I think sometimes that those individuals maybe just had a little bit better ability to use language to express themselves. Yeah. And then there's the folks who are, they feel voiceless and maybe they lash out when they get angry and people don't really listen to them. They don't take them seriously. And it's because they don't have that, that ability that, it, that no one's ever taught them. Like, here's how yeah. you can advocate for yourself. They don't have to scream, but that's all they know. And so sometimes they're not heard. So, yeah, I think that there's, but even the professionals who are, you know, in court and in in all respects supposed to be people who can present um, information effectively, we learn that there's this other. The whole other level. The whole other level that's going on. (laughs) You may be able to, I think you put it this way, like, you may be able to present facts. That's all they are. They're just words. They're just facts. They're yep. just data. And if I can't feel it and I can't internalize it, I'm not communicating. So, right. yeah, I think that happens. For oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's because these are not things that we teach about. We talk about most of the people that I work with have never even thought about half the stuff I'm talking about, you know, from a psychological level, that tone I read as X. So it it is, it's just, you know, it's just a whole nother level. And so, all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to segue over a little bit because talking about a whole nother level, the, the work that you do, the things that you create are so amazing. I just kind of almost think of you a little bit as cutting edge. Maybe you're not, but I think of you as cutting edge very much so with, well, just even bringing me in, you know, but I want to switch over and talk a little bit about the podcast. That is where we met. We met at Podcast Movement. And I think you were just about to start. You were were gathering information then, right? Yeah. I think when, yeah. Um, Well, at that point, I had, uh, I went to Podcast Movement 2017, and I had an amazing experience there. And it was one of those moments where your own saboteur is telling you why why should you go? What do you mm. have to offer? What do you know about this? You're going to be such a, uh, you know, such a sore thumb, if you will, or you're going to, you, you just aren't going to know what, what to do. And I got to tell you, I went there and I met people there. It was one of the most energizing communities that I had yeah. the opportunity to work with. I do lots of conferences. I was lucky enough. I'd actually been to the place that was being held in Anaheim. So it, at least that wasn't going to be foreign to me. I'd been there earlier in the year, I think, or at least the year before. Um, and I actually met somebody, one of the opening receptions who asked me to be on her podcast. It was called the, uh, the private side of public work. And so I went back, I got, I got back from that podcast experience and I, and I recorded a pilot episode. And then in my organization, we had some turnover, people retire. And it took several months before, um, I got around to getting the thumbs up that they wanted me to proceed and, and try to create this podcast. And, um, and that's when I went in July to my second podcast movie and I saw your presentation. And that's when I actually had some experience recording. I worked on the mic a little bit. You know, when I sat in the sessions year two and heard about editing and audacity, it made more sense. Even when I heard your presentation, I could. I, I was able to appreciate it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, yeah, I just, they, they, they said, go ahead and do it. And I think there was a component of the, like, yeah, give him a chance. You know, he, he's, he does some innovative programs. He does. Yeah. Some, but I think there were some people sitting back. Well, let's see, because everybody was worried about how much work everybody had podcast on their list of things we needed. Um, but I think nobody really wanted to put, um, they just were worried about the, the workload and, and don't yeah. get me wrong. There's a certain workload involved with it, but I get so much joy out of yeah. conducting these conversations and interviews. So I really wanted to focus it on collaboration um, with it, with people within the judicial branch uh, so that people get to know each other. Who is this person whose name you may have heard of? Um, maybe you're somebody who wants to be an influencer in the organization. This gets, just gets you exposed to some different areas that you may not work in, but think about it's courts and probation. We're about 4,000 people large. Wow. There's judges, um, of course, and magistrates who are bench officers. And then there's a whole set of staff who support that work. Yeah. And, you know, there's probation, there's budget, there's IT, there's um, human resources, and all of these, all of these different components of just running a branch of government. So there's a lot of, I think, rich information to draw out of the folks about their experiences and their programs and what they're doing. Um, it's a way to communicate in a different channel. The other thing is we are, we are very heavy on written material. We're very heavy mm. on email. And I think podcasts are a way to get people information in a different format. Um, so that's, that's how it got started. Um, Beyond the Collabo Babble is what I call it. And that's where I was lucky enough to have you. I recorded with you and you came to our convening on Children, Youth, and Families. And then uh, we asked you back to do some sessions. And then I recorded with you on Skype. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. I've, I've recorded with you. I've recorded with a few other podcasters, like uh, uh, Soul in America is a podcast with Nora Tagore that's all about human trafficking and sex mm. trafficking. That's really relevant to us. So I look for people who may be doing something on a topic like that. They can listen to me and Nora in an interview. And if they want to go and listen to get more information, they can. Uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who came to our convening, who's an expert in substance use and trauma and childhood trauma. So uh, that's how I've been trying to use the platform. Mm -hmm. And and one of the first questions, if not the first question that you always ask me, I've, I've had the honor of being on your show two times now. And the first question is always, what does Beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you, Tracy? And so I'm going to turn that back on you today. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to say... What does it mean to you? What, 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 how did you pick that name? What does it mean in yeah. your mind? I picked the name because probably around 2007 or 8, we were bringing together uh, judges and attorneys and, and people from human services who were like the first time to have a team meeting and do some planning. And we called this session Beyond the Collabo Bible because mm -hmm. we have so many groups collaborating and the word is used a ton and it, you know, it is what we do. Um, but what does it mean? It like loses its meaning because it's used so much. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. So as I was sitting there thinking about what I wanted to call this show, I thought, why not just use this, this phrase? I've seen, I've seen it now in some other places. I, I might've, I think maybe Obama might've used it in a speech or one of his mm -hmm. secretaries did, but that wasn't actually what brought it to my mind. It was, we use it as a play on words between, you know, the cycle babble and, and trying to say, um, collabo babble, let's talk about what collaboration really is. And so to me, collabo babble is feeling good about just having a conversation um, and, you know, identifying issues and, you know, coming together. But collaboration is when we get down to the business and roll our sleeves up we probably at times are really not feeling good about one another. We're probably like, why am I helping this person? I'm, I'm tired of them. Mm. Mm. Um, we sometimes are going to be the person who's pushing this issue. That is a very innovative practice that everybody's kind of like the podcast as an example. Oh, do we have time to do this new thing? Uh, we're going to be the one who's pushing it. And in another meeting, we're going to be the person who might be the barrier saying, do we have enough resources to do this? But collaboration is your pain points. You know, you're usually talking, I'm stealing this from one of our division directors. Uh, Glenn Tapia is the probation director, but he said something like, uh, it's labor. Collaboration has the word labor in it. It's co-laborate. So it's laboring together. And I kind of like what he, how he put that because it is. It's, 
So beyond the collab with Babu is, you know, doing the work, um, getting the scrapes and scratches uh, with one another. Uh, I was having a conversation last week with somebody who's expressing their frustration with somebody that they've been partnering with for a while in one project. And in this other project, they're, they're really feeling like this person's not being reasonable. And I think collaboration does that to us because we can't always be aligned, but we're always working towards alignment. Yeah. I love that. That's so good. Now, yeah. What, uh, what kind of, what kind of benefits have you seen from, you know, has it been valuable? I think you have, and I think you have several other shows right now too. So, so the value, that's a great question. And I am, I am still, we are, we are still trying to figure that out. Um, Mm. How can we get more listeners? How do we do a better job of marketing within the branch? Um, So I felt pretty good where we are. It launched in July of 2019. um, And unfortunately only one email has gone out branch wide. So I think I'm still working on trying to get some more communication about that. And recently though, we started a, a second show. So we have a legislative liaison who works with the Colorado legislature during our uh, legislative session in Colorado that lasts from January to May. And, and people throughout the state are interested in what's going on. There's different bills that will impact the court, maybe from a workload standpoint, maybe from a discretionary uh, separation of power standpoint, maybe we're going to need resources to implement something that's being proposed. And Terry has started to do this weekly 10 to 15 minute update we've released two of those shows now we're getting some really good feedback they're shorter they're in real time they're relevant to what's going on and there's a there's at least a handful of people across the branch who listen to that um, because they are at least wanting to know and not be surprised in july when the laws maybe go into place and then i also had the opportunity back in september i attended the national leadership summit on or National Judicial Leadership Summit on Child Welfare, number four. Uh, the first one, I think, was held back in 2000, 2002. And it had been a while since we had one of these uh, here in the U.S. Uh, to bring together courts and human services and lawyers and the teams to come talk about where we are as a field and where we need to go. And I was asked to record some podcasts. Uh, the, the program that I work with is called the Court Improvement Program. It's a federally funded program that all state Supreme Courts can get money from the Children's Bureau, and this money is to be used to improve the outcomes for children and families involved in the dependency and neglect system. And it requires us, the funding comes with uh, some requirements to work closely with our Department of Human Services, um, and in particular, the attorneys who represent parents, children, and, and and the government in these cases. And they asked me to record some podcasts. So we called it CIP Stories. And um, after the conference, the National Center for State Courts, which was the entity that, that sort of the, the lead agency, I don't want to leave any other agencies out, but they, were, they turned out to be the lead agency and they coordinated the whole event. And we had, um, I did an interview with uh, Mark Harden, who's an individual who was one of the like, founding fathers of this court improvement program, one of the visionaries. Um, and I interviewed Jane Ole, who was a former commissioner at the Children's Bureau who came from West Virginia. We talked about how, from her experience of working with courts, she really wanted to expand this program. And that's around the time I got involved, the 2005-2007 time frame. And I recorded just some short stories of people from, from around the, the country, Nebraska, New York, Virgin Islands, people that were doing the job. And just they told their little CIP stories. And, and then the National Center said, hey, we're going to put this out on audio boom. We're going to put a link on our website. You want to continue to create content for this. We would like you to do that. So I'm going to do that this year. Hopefully I'm going to continue to record with people from around the country about this work we do. Because it's that, as you know, from podcast movement, they said their riches are in the niches. I'm not trying to get rich, but this is a niche. And yeah. in one of the sessions at Podcast Movement, and I told somebody what I did, they said, wow, you already like live in a niche. I didn't even know this existed. Kind of like you were saying. And so I'm trying to bring the community uh, these stories uh, about the good work that's being done so people can at least, you know, maybe adopt the practice in Nebraska that they heard about from New York. Yeah. Yeah. I love that one. You know, I when I was still in, in New York City, I had started recording. I never ended up rolling it out. Perhaps I'll roll it out when I get back, in, when I move back in May. But New York Stories. 
of just literally individuals off the street that I was interviewing. And I think that's so powerful, those stories. Mm -hmm. People really connect with, I mean, I think they connect with your interview show as well. I'm sure, I'm sure that's very, or, you know, very helpful for people. I would think it would be, they'd love it, but there's just nothing like stories, right? Yeah. There's nothing like stories. So, so my answer is that I haven't seen the impacts yet. I have received okay. some emails. People have said, this is helpful. I'm learning a lot. Um, I think there's a lot more potential there because once again, I feel like blaze the path, figure out the, the, the technology, figure out how we could do this. I was really lucky and I would be remiss if I didn't plug my sound engineer, Mike Jacob, who is actually a musician and also someone in our IT department, a software engineer, who I just randomly was asking about his music and then said, maybe, uh, maybe you'd be willing to help me out on this project. And, and he's been, he's been the reason I've been able to, the, the, actually the scheduling of interviews take time, as you probably know, but like mm-hmm. the interviews themselves are really fun and I enjoy them. I, I'll, I'll make the time. It's the editing. And we were talking about this before we went on the editing. I do a little bit of the editing, but he has the software. He does the sound yeah. engineering. He makes the level sound good. Um, and Mike is an amazing, amazing sound engineer. And so that really makes us have the show. We can put it out with the quality of sound because that's that's the one thing I took away from podcast movement. Was, yeah. It doesn't sound good. People don't listen. So no. no. <laughs> so anyway, we're working through that. I see potential, though. There's a lot of people who, you know, Colorado is a big state, a lot of rural areas. People who are having a lot of windshield time day to day, things that they can listen to, um, maybe even trainings that can be put in the podcast format. We we hope to do, you know, continue to move this. I've been working on it probably two or three years. I feel like these types of things take a couple of years. It's been released six, seven, eight months ago. I feel like maybe in the other six to eight months, we'll really start yeah. to see. And hopefully with some technology like Microsoft Teams, as we get that launched internally, maybe that'll help me get people to follow, suggest episodes, vote on the next episode. I have some ideas mm, on how to engage yeah. my audience. Right now, it's it's, it's been more passive than I'd like, but mm. I can see that I have over 1400 downloads so far and about 29 episodes. So I think, I think oh, it's, it's being used. Yeah. It's just, I have, I have hopes of. Yeah. Well, there you, there you go with that cutting edge stuff again and that creativity that you're so good at and it's just completely in-house, right? Or this, well, collab yeah. beyond the collab of Babel for sure. is just in-house, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, the CIP stories is something people could find on the National Center for State Courts, or if you Googled it, it would pop up. The Beyond the Collabo Babble is still a internal podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I've actually had some guests uh, that they are public records, so we treat every one of these like a public record, and they're available if somebody requested them. And I even had one, uh, actually Michael and Glenna, who I was talking about earlier, they requested that they take the podcast and use it on their website. And so we're working on an arrangement where they could do it. It's a public record. We, we really view it that way, but the RSS feed is how people find me or they go to the link. It's not yeah. in the directories yet. My hope is at some point, once again, I always pitched it as let's take it slow. Let's mm-hmm. prove the concept. Let's, let's get people comfortable with it. And then at some point, let's put it out there. There's courts all over the country. Um, that do have podcasts, so it's not like it doesn't exist. The National Center for State Courts has recently started one, the National Association of Court Managers. So the field is catching up. You know, podcasts have been around for a while, but I feel like the field I work in, we're starting to use this medium more. And so my hope is at some point I could put it out there too, just general in the in the in the directories. So anybody that might have interest in this this area mm-hmm. uh, could listen to it. Well, I'm sure you have interviewed incredibly fascinating guests. Well, I interviewed you, so. Well, <laughs> well yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's that. I count, I, count you as one of, I count you as one of my favorite interviews in, in a field that, you know, that was, is still emerging for me is the, one of the more interesting things that, for me to think about. But yeah, it was great to, to be able to connect with you. And I've had, I've had the pleasure of you know, interviewing, there are, you know, this is the other thing. There are people in the Colorado judicial branch. I have a, a person who's our talent recruitment specialist mm. and, you know, who's a coach and has, is working with people on their careers and how to advance or to get mm. to where they want to go. 
such a great podcast, right? I mean, so sometimes we want to, I've interviewed our chief justice, but there's so many among us that do this work and have interesting stories and, and about why they do the work. And what I've found with the people within judicial, it's just this theme of public service that the folks really end up kind of talking about in every episode. It's like, we have that in common. We work for the same organization and we all kind of are driven. So I'm hoping that that we are a tribe thing kind of takes off as more people learn about it. But yeah, I mean, really great guests, but you were one of my favorite interviews. It was so much fun. Uh, both times, actually. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love coming on the show. And I I just love, com- I mean, I'll have to probably wear you out with how much I love coming down there. Yeah. But, you know, and that's the thing. Even when I worked with your people, especially the last time I came, every, every from whatever position they're in, they are some of the most impactful people, most compassionate people, making such a difference in whatever role they're playing. There are so, I had no idea there were so many different roles and moving parts in the family court system. So I can see why you'd really have to really focus on collaboration. And I would think this, the podcast would be a great way to, to, to help with that. Yeah, I I agree with you. And, uh, and, you know, there's so many podcasts that I find useful to my work that aren't necessarily about courts, mm. but mm-hmm. the concepts, the, the stories, the, the approaches, you know, somebody I love to listen to, for example, is like Seth Godin. He's a, he's a marketing guru, but it's, right. it's really about, make, it's about ideas that make change, that, take, that have people to take action that lead to lasting changes. And, you know, his work does, like, gets me thinking about, okay, how can I apply this to what I do? And um, so I feel like that's where there's a lot of people that love podcasts, but I also mm-hmm. feel like we have so many within our, our organization. We have so many people who are probably listening to podcasts, but also people who still are not. And there's still this untapped market, right? That's what we learn about podcasts in general. Yeah. There's still this huge audience that they believe is out there. And so um, the more people that I can get who can sit at their desk or drive to their meeting or on their way into the office, and listen to this and learn something new and still get their job done is, yeah. is what I'm hoping for. Well, I sure would like to hear that interview with that chief justice. Okay. I bet maybe. that is awesome. Okay. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll share something with you. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah. Um, but thank you. Yeah. It's been a really, it's been a really fun experience and it's, it's given me the ability also to connect and meet people either yeah. that I didn't know or people that I didn't know, but in, in a little bit different way. Um, and I bought the headset, I bought the mobile recorder. Mm. I like to also drive around the state and, and interview people in person whenever I can. Um, so it helps me kind of uh, see where they are. And, and, you know, courts are generally doing the same work, but uh, where for no county, Colorado is different than Denver County, Colorado. Right. And it's really nice. And, and I think at some of your trainings, you have people coming from all over the state. So you've got a mix of people. Yeah. But there, there, there are challenges, there are barriers. They look a little bit different, but I think they're all working with people and engaging people yeah. and trying to serve the community. And so that's when we find something that we can bring to everybody that hopefully voice coaching, uh, how to use your voice. Right. Kind of thing that applies everywhere. Right. And I know, and and you are, you're just so cutting edge coming up with all these wonderful ideas and programs for your people. And I know I'm going to have to let you go. I could sit here and talk about this all day, but I want to ask one more question. I want to ask, you've done this a long time. So I'm sure in this 20 year window, you have seen things change significantly over the years. What is it, what is the greatest challenge for you in your work in 2020? And you, oh, I mean, wow. maybe even in comparison to, you know, 20, I mean, 2005. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, well, first I'll say this as a, as a somebody who has been entrusted with a leadership position to lead others. Um, I think the hardest thing that I, that I deal with or that I address probably daily is just managing myself. I feel like that's the hardest mm. thing that any leader does is managing themselves, being curious, asking the right mm-hmm. questions, 
now I know I have to control my voice differently. How much, <laughs> can, how much just my, you know, my voice could undermine the conversation I'm trying to have with somebody that it's on my team or in a community we're, we're working with. So um, now the substance of the work, um, hmm, that's a really good question. What's the biggest challenge? I think it just, go ahead. No, I was going to, and, and I guess what made me think about asking that question is you've, you've mentioned the word trauma, you've mentioned the word uh, drug and, and dependency. And I just, from what you see in the world today, that has to have escalated. Mm-hmm. Maybe it hasn't, but I just feel like maybe things have just gotten harder out in the world, yeah. which creates more challenges for you. So that's what actually made me ask that question. You know, I think that's that's why it's such a great question. I don't know. Alcohol and 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 and, and narcotics have always been an issue, and I think we're in a time right now where there's a heroin epidemic, and that mm-hmm. is tragic. But I also talk to people in counties in Colorado who say methamphetamine is still their biggest drug of choice, and that's when I was working in a drug court in the early 2000s. Methamphetamine and alcohol mm. were the two main drugs of choice. So. Um, I think as we become more educated, more knowledgeable um, about what trauma is and how it impacts people, as we understand the need to match the treatment we order somebody into to match their need and understanding that we have to have quality programs that meet that need. I think as you become a little bit more aware of these things, uh, the biggest challenge is, is like, how do you have more fidelity to what we know that works? Because yeah. there are still people who take this, you know, rock bottom approach. People have to hit rock bottom, but right. Mm-hmm. People are dying. They're, they're, yeah. they're dying before they hit rock bottom, or maybe that's the very bottom of, of this, of this um, challenge. So I think the biggest challenge is we have in this country, this is just me, my personal opinion and sort of, we don't have the infrastructure to help people with the, the mental health and the mm-hmm. substance use. And mm-hmm. I think we still do have an idea that it is a personal choice and people uh, just need to do the right thing. And I think as we get a more sophisticated understanding of this, that's, mm-hmm. it's not that simple. No, not even and close. Even as we flip that mindset, then we realize, boy, we've got a long way to go to build this, this, this resources that we need. I think that's the biggest challenge for, for us in the courts because I think a lot of the people we're seeing are the people that are at the highest risk, highest need. Mm-hmm. They're there because all the other systems may have not been able to meet that need. Yeah. Um, and as we, as a society, kind of grapple with this, and I think that the one, the one thing that the heroin epidemic has done is I think it has brought the, uh, the reality of addiction into more middle class and upper class mm-hmm communities yes yeah. it's it's a different people are looking at it differently i think if you watch enough media on the topic you're going to encounter people who even say i was the one protesting the clinic for uh you know the the medical assisted treatment i'm forgetting the name of it. oh yeah uh, fen- that's not fentanyl not fentanyl not suboxone but uh Anyway, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. But you know, the treatment—I don't want—I don't want that clinic in my neighborhood. And then, and then, two years later, I saw in one of these shows where somebody saying, "Now I'm the one who has a child who needs this this drug." Oh wow! You know, it's flipping a lot. Uh, Yeah, I I still think that we don't have the public. You know, Dr. Gabor Mate said this on my podcast. I heard him say it on Tim Ferriss's podcast. But like every three weeks we're having a 9-11 in mm. terms of the number of people dying from overdoses every three wow. weeks. And where's the mobilization of all the public health and the mental health? And the, it's not there yet. And so I think that's the biggest challenge for yeah. us as a country is to say, like, when are we going to figure this, this out and really start to address these issues the way that they need to be addressed? I think we know there's hope where there's, there's proven protocols and ways of treating this. Um, and a lot of it's rooted in the childhood trauma. So I think yeah. the, more, the more work we do, it doesn't mean everybody with childhood trauma is going to become addicted. I think this is what 
uh, Dr. Mate said to me, but everybody he worked with in Vancouver, and that's one of the places where per square mile, the most people are using drugs. He said, but every person that was addicted had trauma that he worked with. Yeah. The and studies, so the mm-hmm. studies are incredible on trauma and addiction. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's how we thought 15 years ago, did we? I don't think we did, or we didn't appreciate it as much. And I think the other part of the challenge now is what do you do? Now you have the knowledge. So how do you apply it? Yeah. How do you cre- create places like a family treatment drug court where people can connect? It is a place for peacemaking. It is a place for healing. Um, how do we get to a place where we do more of that? The, I think we know more and more that for the folks who are in those high-risk categories, punishment and sanctions mm. don't work. Jail yeah. does not work. Yeah. We, so that's where I th- that's where I see the biggest flip in in my career. Yeah, the, the awareness has flipped completely, um, but it's still such a big task that we're we're trying to figure out how to best address it. Yeah, I saw an interview the other day with a woman in West Virginia, which I guess is a is one of the the biggest uh, issue. You know, drug they're just eaten up with it, and she has I guess adopted, fostered. Well, it's a family of daughters. And apparently in a little more investigation, just because I I was very interested in hearing from her, it's just this explosion of children into the family court system Mm -hmm. because the parents are either have overdosed or are completely strung out on drugs or in jail. And so they've got this massive crisis. They're desperate for foster families. Yeah. And it's a crisis in the country. Um, You know, I know we're wrapping up. We could spend a lot of time on this, but. You know, there's nearly a half a million children who are in foster care and government mm. care in this country. And I don't know how many people, you know, spend time thinking about it. And a lot of those, a lot of those, those, those children who end up aging out is what we call it. They just turn 18 or 21 and they move on. Um, the outcomes for them are terrible. Uh. Um, they, they have, you know, they repeat the cycle. They're in jail. They're homeless. Uh, mm. They're overdosing themselves. It's a terrible so, you know, the, 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 short, the short stay in foster care, maybe the, the stabilization, maybe some kids have safety that, that needs to be addressed. But for a lot of these kids, they're just being re-traumatized every time mm. we remove yeah. them from families. And we're, as a society, this is repeating. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge for us in this country to really figure out how that we can come together and serve these children and their parents who sometimes, let's face it, um, they may not have a story on its face that makes them as um, appealing to want to help sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But if we dig a little deeper, we usually find out, um, hey, they've had a tough, tough, yeah. they had a tough childhood themselves. And uh, there's, yeah, there's a thing on Netflix, I think it's called uh, Recovery Boys. And, and, and it kind of tells the story and it's based out of West Virginia. So, oh, Wow. Yeah, but yeah, West Virginia definitely has been devastated. I think there's county yeah. the number of pills prescribed in the county that were a county of fifty thousand and millions of pills prescribed. Mm. Mm. I think I don't have the stats right. Don't quote me on that, but right. it's 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 not an over exaggeration to say. And then I think when we've got a better handle on how we control uh, these prescriptions for being abused, we've sent people into the streets to buy heroin and. Right. Raised heroin and right. And and yeah, like you said, there's children who either have parents that aren't around or they've they've overdosed. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, documentary heroin was filmed there. And I think about you and your teams every time I think about that, because there was such compassion and just such tragedy among the community. And it could have been anybody's community. It could be my community. Well, I'm seeing it happen in my community out here in Los Angeles. So we really, you know, you really, there is so much to do. And that's why I think that the work that you do and the people that, that you work with, I just have such such mad respect for because you're in there every day doing it and making a difference. Well, thank you for saying that. And, and uh, I know my colleagues will, will appreciate hearing that. So thank you. Yeah. I just think y'all are the best. Well, Bill, I just have loved having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for giving me, giving us, me and the audience, so much of your time and being here with us today. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you one question. Uh-oh. 
Uh-oh. Maybe you'll use it, maybe you won't, but it happens to be Super Bowl Sunday, and mm. the San Francisco 49ers are playing the, um, oh, who are they playing? The Kansas, Kansas City and I'm wondering if you if you have a pick, if you want to predict the winner, and we'll see if we put this on audio and you publish it, we'll see if you're right or wrong. Oh, my goodness. I we'll didn't know. The team. What do you yeah. think? A little well, Super Bowl fun. Well, I got to go with Kansas City. Okay. Well, I got to go with Kansas. No, you San Francisco? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just take San Francisco. I'm on the fence anyway. Why have two people pick San Francisco? One of us will be correct. One of us will be wrong. And your audience will hear that. And then the next time we talk, we can see who was right. That's right. That's right. Now, don't make me do a point spread or anything, because I don't know enough about it. I don't know enough about it. I don't even know what the point spread is now, but I think it was pretty close to even. I think these teams are pretty, yeah, these teams are pretty evenly matched. So I think we'll just go Mm. straight up and we'll see who, we'll see who wins today. And you've got the Chiefs. Okay. Get the Niners. Okay. Why did you why did you pick the Chiefs? Just because you think Mahomes is the right quarterback for the job? Or? I do for sure. I do for sure. And I feel like I'll tell you, you're gonna you're gonna laugh when I see, when you say why did I, why did you pick them? I felt like they had a little more gratitude. Oh. In their in their celebration. Okay. Yeah, it's got a crazy thing. Like football people everywhere are like, okay, this woman has no clue. But. Hey, were you reading Mahomes' voices too? Like, did you get it when they? Oh, talked? for sure. Yes, that's exactly where I'm coming okay. from. Okay. I navigate the world that way, and yeah. there was such humility, such humility in him, you know, that I just thought. So that gave me this kind of feel of underdog, yeah. which I don't know. I don't follow football enough to know if they were ever an underdog, but there was just such humility and gratitude that I thought, yeah, they're going to win. They're focused. They're ready. <laughs> They're they're not take they're not taking themselves too serious until they win. That's that right. It may be a little less gratitude. I don't know. Hopefully. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I'm just glad somebody. And of course, everybody listening will just roll their eyes. So I'm gonna probably make some people mad. But I'm just glad it's a year off from the Patriots. Yeah, that's that's what everybody pretty much is saying in Denver. Uh, they're not they're not big Patriot fans out here because I wouldn't the think they, they beat the Broncos. Broncos yeah, when they yeah. put Tom Brady up on the TV. You know, everybody boos, and I'm not a Broncos <laughs> fan, so I kind of like it just because they're all, they're they're all sort of. They all said, "I'm so just glad I don't have to see the Patriots." Right. Well, so everybody it, should get a turn. Yeah, everybody should be excited. It's been what fifty plus years for the Chiefs. Yeah, that too. See, that's playing into it too, right? Yep. So, well, good. Well, we'll see. We'll have to reconvene and see who won. Yes, we will. So anyway, thank you again for this opportunity. I hope your audience uh, is interested in in what we talked about. And and I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart how thankful I am that you've been able to work with our folks. And and hopefully we'll find some more opportunities. I know that there are some people who really have found some real practical ways to communicate that do their jobs better. And uh, it's a credit to the work you've done with them. So thank you Mm -hmm. so much. You are welcome. I just, like I say, I love being there and I could just gush about it all day long. So it's a, it's a, it's a true honor when I get to come. So hopefully soon we'll, we'll reconvene there and we'll take it up another level. Yeah, but, sounds good. All right, listeners. Well, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you for being here too. But until I see you next time, you know what to do. Get out there and speak your truth. Just do it beautifully. Thanks for listening to Captivate the Room with Tracy Goodwin. You can reach out to her at CaptivateTheRoom.com and be sure to grab The Voice Formula, a free video series that will help you start making a bigger impact with your voice today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. 